at that point, I just realized I wanted to narrowly focus on this thing. Again, didn't have a name, but I was really passionate about revenue operations. And you can't do that, or at that point in time, you couldn't do that as a whole career at a single company. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Insights Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Greg Poirier. He's the CEO of Cloudcastle and an advisor to a number of SaaS solutions. Throughout his career, Greg has built sales and marketing teams across the tech industry. Greg, it's great to have you on. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background from yourself. Thanks for having me, Lee. So to begin with, um, you know, what's your story? How I, I know you kind of started at a company that was acquired by Salesforce, but I'm sure you can add a bit more color, but much better than I can. Yeah, well, I worked at a company that was started by Salesforce. I, I did not start it, definitely. There was much, uh, much smarter people with more foresight than me that started that company, but I'll go into that. So, you know, I, I graduated from university uh, with an MBA, obviously thought I was the most brilliant person in the world at that point in time. And uh, that was the first tech bubble crash. So that obviously kneecapped me a bit in terms of where I was going to go. Uh, so I, I ended up getting a job um, doing 50% sales, 50% marketing at a small regional cinema chain. And uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but they were about to go through a massive round of acquisitions. And during my seven years there, we went from being you know, a second run you know, very small regional operation to being one of the largest in North America. So, you know, it was an incredible fortuitous time to work um, in a pretty exciting industry. Uh, you know, mo- movies are cool and fun. And, you know, while I started there, um, kind of my initial focus was really around marketing, but I got stuck doing a lot of sales stuff, which at the time I didn't particularly enjoy. Uh, so I helped sell a lot of the ads that ran before the movies and oversaw that program eventually, and also sold a lot of large-scale group bookings and things like that. As part of that, um, every morning, I used to have to go, because I was the most technical person, uh, I used to have to go and sync three computers. Um, So there were three salespeople who used three different computers, and I would sync each of those computers every morning, and that was our CRM. It wasn't in the cloud. It was three separate databases, and I sync those three computers every morning. Um, and, you know, I just realized, hey, this is not a great solution. So I'd, I found this new bleeding-edge company doing something called the cloud on the internet um, called Salesforce. And I, I went to the IT team and recommended this as a solution. And they said, oh, God, no, we cannot store our information on somebody else's servers. Um, and that, that took some convincing. I mean, at that point in time, eventually I also oversaw our website and our email subscriber list of like a quarter of a million people. And that website was doing a million visits, which was very high traffic at that point in time. Um, but we were still all on-prem. Everybody was on-prem. There was no 
you know, cloud wasn't really fully conceptualized then. So, you know, I used to have to purchase servers every month. Um, but ev- eventually they did see the light and we ended up adopting Salesforce then probably maybe 2010, somewhere around there. I don't remember the exact year, but that was a pretty bleeding edge movement at the time was moving to a cloud-based CRM. And I was also very fortunate at that point in time that our email subscriber list that I was overseeing got so big that we had to migrate to a more sophisticated solution, which ended up being Exact Target, which eventually was acquired by Salesforce and became kind of the core of what is now Marketing Cloud. And also, I was really delving into these relatively new concepts of SEO and these new platforms called Google Analytics and Google AdWords and paid search. And so it was, I mean, a perfect time to be in that industry. And I, I got to do a lot of really exciting stuff. And, you know, at the start of every month, I would go to them with some new uh, crazy idea. And to their credit, they would give me the budget to do something with it and say, okay, you know, here's this much money. You had to justify it because cinemas are very tight operationally. Um, but they would give me the opportunity to take risks and they rewarded those risks. And, you know, every quarter when I had a new crazy idea, um, they let me do it. And as long as I could justify it and I, you know, I had a couple of pretty big, notoriously large flops, but for the most part, a lot of those ideas really paid out. Um, so they gave me a lot of rope and I, you know, I appreciate that. I got to grow a lot there. And then from there, I was recruited to a fast growing startup called Radiant Six, which was doing social listening. And so at that point in time, I mean, maybe I was employee 200, somewhere less, probably pre 200, but, um, they were growing really quickly. And I think my first day, 30 other people started in the employee onboarding. So we were like growing by 10% a week, maybe even it was crazy time. And, um, you know, we had brands like Pepsi, Hershey, um, all the national airlines, et cetera. And I was essentially running what would now be called marketing operations and a little bit of sales operations there, although it didn't have a name then this was like 2011, maybe. Um, and eventually very fortuitously for me, because I love the platform, we got acquired by Salesforce. Um, and additionally, at that point in time, our email platform was Pardot, which was also acquired by Salesforce. So over a span of two companies, I'd actually started heavily using Exact Target, Pardot, and Salesforce, all of which at one point in time later became part of the Salesforce cluster of what is now known as um, Salesforce Core and Marketing Cloud. And additionally, Radiant 6 was acquired by them. So I got to go work there. Um, and, you know, just again, the perfect alignment of stars for somebody with the career trajectory that I wanted to have. From there, I was recruited away post-acquisition to build and run what would now be called revenue operations at two different B2B SaaS companies, eventually becoming CEO of the last one. And at that point, I just realized I wanted to narrowly focus on this thing. Again, didn't have a name, but I was really passionate about revenue operations. And you can't do that, or at that point in time, you couldn't do that as a whole career at a single company. Um, so I started Cloud Kettle under the conceit of, hey, I want to do this one specific niche thing. I want to do it for really big companies um, and help them do it. And if I start my own company, I'll just be able to do that thing that I'm passionate about, as opposed to go and have to expand into other things like becoming COO of these other companies. 
And so what was it, you know, from, and thank you so much for, for, for giving all the detail of kind of what's brought you to where you are now. So what was it then that really inspired you to, to build Cloud Kettle? I knew that I was at a point in my career where I did not want to be COO of a SaaS tech company again. I did not enjoy fundraising. I did not enjoy raising rounds. I did not enjoy um, working with investors. I did not enjoy a lot of things about that world that I was at a point that that was what I was going to have to do. Like I was already COO of a SaaS company. The only way up is to go be see something, something at another slightly bigger SaaS company. But that is the box that I was in at that point in time. And I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. So starting Cloud Kettle was really about having the latitude to do the stuff I was passionate about and not have to do that other stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that other stuff. Like I I work with a lot of passionate um, SaaS founders and they really thrive and enjoy doing that. That just wasn't my shtick. I wanted to work on and in the systems and I wanted to solve really thorny technical problems and I wasn't getting to do that anymore. So Cloud Kettle was a, you know, an avenue for Greg to do the thing that he wanted to do. I, I love that, literally a, a, a way of doing ultimately the, what you're passionate about, right? Um, and so in being able to you know, really do your own thing and put your own stamp on it, what would you say have been... That you know the biggest successes of being able to do it in your own way. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why we have been successful, and most of them roll back to things I learned at Radiant Six and at Empire Theaters, and things I picked up from those leadership teams. Uh, and it's not to diminish the fact that you know I'd achieved an MBA. It took two years of my life. I, I learned a lot of stuff about finance and accounting and other things. But really, if you look at how you run a successful company, what you learn is leadership and mentorship and those skills. And those came from working for incredibly talented, um, kind-hearted, intelligent people at Empire and later at Radiant Six. And when I look at the things that have made Cloud Kettle a success, it is the things I learned from those people and how I patterned my behavior after those people that made Cloud Kettle successful. And, you know, two of those main items being the concept of a V2 mom. So, um, you know, every employee should have this plan that aligns with the whole organization for their year. And then just being incredibly transparent in how you educate employees and be transparent with employees about what the plan for the business is, how it's doing, and what those metrics are that everybody is being measured on. Um, those were, I mean, of many things I learned at Radiant Six and Empire Theaters, those were probably the two that I carried through to Cloud Kettle that had the biggest impact. For those listening that don't know what a V2 mom is, can you just kind of explain and also go into a little bit of why you found it to be so valuable? Yeah, so... Um, most people listening are probably familiar with the concept of OKRs. So um, if you come from the Salesforce ecosystem, like I did, Salesforce has a very similar concept and parts of it are a pretty direct um, ripoff, I would say. Uh, Salesforce is a concept of V2 moms, which is at the start of every year, the leadership team comes together and they create their V2 moms, which are multi-page documents that outline what each member's um, vision for the year in the company is going to be, what their values are, um, what their methods are going to be for achieving things in the coming year, 
what those obstacles are that could prevent that and what the measures are. So what are the very measurable metrics of success in the context of that V2 mom? And so at Salesforce and at many companies that have spun out of Salesforce, including Cloud Kettle, every year there is this V2 mom exercise where at Cloud Kettle, our leadership team comes together, we create our V2 mom. So at my level, it's very high level. Obviously, it's you know, this is what our revenue goals are going to be for the year. This is how they're going to break down across revenue lines. This is how employees are going to be allocated in terms of total headcount. Um, these are the type of clients we're going to pursue. These are the strategic objectives we're going to be going after, et cetera. And this is what our multi-year plan for the organization is. And then from that, the other members of the leadership team, so our Salesforce practice, read that um, and the leader of our Salesforce practice comes up with his V2 mom. The leader of our marketing automation practice comes up with their V2 mom. Um, Our uh, leader of our marketing team, she comes up with her V2 mom and everybody understands what the top line metrics are going to be. So as an example, the head of our um, marketing team knows, okay, well, if this is what our total revenue is going to be for the year and these are the total number of sales we need, et cetera. This is what the breakdown is going to have to be, obviously, of how we support this from a marketing perspective in terms of ad dollars and MQLs, et cetera. So um, that translates down into every employee. And those V2 moms are posted in Slack and every single employee can see every other employee's V2 moms, including what their metrics of success are for the whole year. I really love the idea of, you know, complete transparency that you're delivering literally across um, the entirety of your business. So um, I guess to go a little bit into a slightly more granular level of detail then, so for the individuals on in your revenue teams, you know, across sales and marketing, customer success, perhaps, you know, your, your reps on the front line, for example, um, how do you think it benefits them? I think, I mean, there's a couple of things around that. So first of all, I would say when I started Cloud Kettle, the whole V2 mom process seemed rather psychotic. Uh, you know, the fact that a person would start a company in their basement and be one human being and have this multi-page document of what their whole plan for the coming year is going to be, um, that's odd and unusual. And I understand that, obviously. But I knew I was going to grow the company into something bigger, so it made sense. And so then when we had one employee... Um, she did her V2 mom and I did my V2 mom together. And, you know, over time, obviously that's translated. Now there's dozens and dozens of employees and it keeps everybody growing in the same direction, but also it removes a lot of uncertainty. Like when we make decisions within the organization, it's much more clear to employees as to why we're making those decisions um, because they understand what the multi-year plan for the organization is. We don't shield that from them. And additionally, at the end of every quarter, we have an all-hands meeting where the leadership team presents to the employees what all the metrics were for the organization, much the way that you would present to a board. So every employee in the company at the end of every quarter attends a meeting where they find out what our total revenue was, what our total profit margin was, what percent of our total revenue we spend on employees, um, so salaries, benefits, et cetera, what percent is based on marketing, et cetera, um, how each individual group on the leadership team performed. So did they meet objectives, not meet objectives? Did we hit our profit margin, not hit our profit margin, et cetera? That information is visible to every employee. 
For new employees, sometimes that can be a bit overwhelming. Some will find that level of transparency a little stressful. They actually would prefer not to understand how the business is being run, but it helps everybody understand why and when we make decisions. So a lot of the time, employees are really confused at big companies. So, well, why are they hiring in this group but not this group? And why are we deploying this new system and not you know, allocating resources here. And those questions certainly come up at Cloud Kettle, but they're a lot less. And the reason they're a lot less is because, you know, we're incredibly transparent with them on how we're performing and what we're doing. And employees understand, okay, this division is growing at a pace that was unexpected. That's why they are hiring and resourcing this area. Okay, this group did not grow at the pace that was expected in Q1. That's why we're not seeing a lot of headcount being allocated there, et cetera. So, it really helps everybody understand what's going on. It reduces a lot of uncertainty. And I like to think, although, you know, in my position as CEO, it's always hard to say this and understand what's happening on the front lines necessarily, but it reduces a lot of the back channel rumors and um, speculation and other items by just being upfront. Because those conversations are going to happen with employees whether you tell them the correct information or not, it's kind of like the sex on the playground scenario. You can either explain to your children how sex works at some point, or you can let them find out on the playground. Probably what they're going to find out if you explain it to them is going to be a lot more accurate, but they're going to have that conversation at some point. I think that that's a fantastic analogy for it. I'm, I'm really keen to dig into a little bit more about the work that you do at Cloud Kettle and, and the clients that you work with. So, so before we actually get into it, to everyone listening, um, you know, you've talked a little bit a bit about Cloud Kettle itself and how you run things internally. But what, who are the businesses that you're working with, and I guess more specifically, um, how are you working with them? Yeah. So, Cloud Kettle, not surprisingly, given my background, is very focused on revenue operations and also very focused on doing that for a specific niche. So. You know, most organizations, and there are quite a few, you know, quote unquote, Salesforce shops out there and SIs, uh, you know, they, their goal is to be the largest revenue operations shop in the tri-state area, or, you know, they want to be the largest Salesforce implementer in the state of Michigan or whatever the case may be. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I came from a marketing background. And when you come from a marketing background, you know, you have beaten into your head being niche and having a specific value proposition, et cetera. So I knew from Cloud Kettle, and you don't get to pick or choose your clients on day zero, obviously. To a certain extent, I had two relatively new babies and a relatively new mortgage and a lot of mouths to feed. So I couldn't be as picky as I would have liked. But I knew in the long term where I wanted the company to go. And that was I wanted to do revenue operations specifically around the Salesforce ecosystem for large enterprises. and even more specifically than that, ones that were in highly regulated or high compliance industries. So think telco, think um, banks, think uh, we do a lot of work with organizations who are in health tech and fintech um, because I've got and many members here have um, SaaS backgrounds. So we end up doing a lot of work on the Salesforce ecosystem and then the Echo um, ecosystem beyond that for organizations that are in um, technology industries, but they're regulated or high compliance. Telco is a really good example. Health tech's a really good example. FinTech's a really good example. So 
With that in mind, what would you say is perhaps the biggest challenge or challenges, take it however you want to, um, that new clients that you're bringing on are really experiencing? I'd say from it's really interesting because if you if you ask people at medium-sized companies who are doing something in revenue operations. So I'm a medium-sized company, you know, maybe I work at a SaaS company and we have $100 million in revenue a year and we've got a pretty good growth rate. If you ask them what the problems are, they're like, well, we can't afford to staff, you know, our Salesforce team the way we would like to. We can't afford to staff our marketing automation team the way we would like to. And we can't afford these integrations with these new systems. So it usually comes down to a lack of headcount resources. And then if you look at the mega size company, so most of Cloud Kettle's revenue, like well over two thirds comes from publicly traded companies. If you look at them and if you were to ask those medium sized companies, um, you know, what problems do you think they have? Those big companies have the exact same problems. It just tends to be positioned in a different way, which is they often have legacy platforms from multiple acquisitions, but they don't have the headcount. They don't have the resources to rationalize them. So, uh, you know, for one of our large telco clients, I think we've merged five different instances of Salesforce in the last year. Um, and often we're merging multiple marketing automation platforms. Uh, but those are really big, heavy, um, time-intensive projects for organizations to do, and often they can't. <laughs> so at those large enterprise companies, you often have revenue operations teams, people working in marketing automation, people working in um, sales operations, people working in these other platforms, uh, and, and they can't achieve the forward motion they want to, not because they're not smart, not because they don't have budgets, but because those rationalizations of platforms take two to three years at a time. Um, and that makes them very difficult, long-term, undesirable projects. So they end up having all the same friction and constraints as the medium-sized company. It just looks a different way. Yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting because you've kind of started to touch on what I was interested to follow up with, uh, follow up to that with, um, which obviously the, the types of companies that you're working with, you know, being the enterprise size, now my assumption initially would be, well, you know, they've probably got a revenue operations function in-house, right? Um, so I guess the first part of that question is, do they? And you're kind of going in as additional support. Or is it enterprise size companies that perhaps haven't um, um, evolved to the point of building that function themselves, probably because of the scale of, of some of the challenges they're facing? Yeah, I, I mean, for most of our clients, they have quite a few people you know, probably dozens working in the domains of marketing operations and sales operations and working on marketing automation platforms and working on Salesforce and working on Google Analytics and working on, um, you know, ETLs and data pipelines and all these things. So they have a lot of people that would be classified as working under a bundle or an umbrella of revenue operations. But what's very dynamic at these organizations is how they're organized. And most companies we're working with now are probably having a major change once a year in who those teams roll up to. So it'll progress from the marketing operations people report to digital marketing or something, the sales operations people report to IT. And then the next year, the sales force team now reports to a new division called sales operations, but the marketing team still reports to marketing. And then a year later, we'll see the progression where you have a new revenue leader, CRO, 
and marketing and sales now roll up to this person. And so then you start to see these people being bundled under one team. But certainly amongst our clients, what's still a 50-50 split is whether or not the responsibility for the platforms rolls to IT or whether the responsibility for those platforms rolls to marketing sales slash revenue. It's really interesting because in recent recent weeks, I've been speaking to um, you know RevOps professionals and, and CROs and much smaller companies, and and so curious to know from a more you know enterprise perspective, you know those legacy issues. Do you think that they you know for the larger enterprise size businesses, do you think that they are going to inevitably end up in the direction of having a revenue operations department with those operations you know rolling up into it? Or do you think that they'll go in kind of a bespoke um, solution that suits their business? I think inevitably you're going to see the revenue operations departments get deployed because the platforms are becoming so specific and so important that they need their own team to oversee them. However, what is unclear and will likely continue to be a 50-50 split is depending on the culture of the organization, the end responsibility for those platforms, not the strategy, but the upkeep and maintenance may still roll to IT. So what's fairly common in those large enterprises and may not change for the foreseeable future is that the um, DevOps processes and the stability of Salesforce and the security of Salesforce and everything related to that belongs to a team in IT. And the strategy of how Salesforce is leveraged and what it's going to be adapted to do and what platforms tie into it and how it's funded and resourced, et cetera, rolls to somebody in a sales operations or revenue operations capacity. But because of the data that is inherently stored in it, which is customer data, and so if we're talking about a bank, if we're talking about a telco, if we're talking about organizations that sell to the U.S. military, if we're talking about healthcare, that data is so important and those companies very rightly are so conscious about security that those functions will probably stay in IT for the foreseeable future. There's just too much at stake. And um, they, rightly or wrongly, see marketing and sales often as being gunslingers in the Wild West And for that reason, um, the security and stability aspect of those platforms stays with IT. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm intrigued to know, being a gunslinger from doing marketing and sales beforehand, from your perspective, how do you approach aligning marketing, sales and customer success together? Because obviously you're working with companies that by the sounds of it are fairly siloed. So is that something that you work with them to, to achieve? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question to answer. It really depends on the size of the company. You know, if we're talking about a multinational bank, Cloud Kettle is not going to have a significant impact on what the culture of that organization is going to be. However, for almost all of our clients, we're working with them usually at a CRO or CMO level, um, often both. And so we are participating pretty heavily in the annual planning, budgeting, strategy process for those teams. So 
um, you know, for most of our clients, we would be heavily involved in the annual planning process around what sales operations is going to execute on in the next year and what marketing operations is going to execute on in the next year or however they term those functions internally. And so we would be part of a discussion saying, okay, you know, based on what marketing is saying they want to achieve, you probably will need to deploy a CDP in 2023 um, and fully ramping that CDP to start getting value out of it in 2024. This is the headcount you would require in 2023 to do that. This is the professional services you would require 2023 to execute on that. This is how you're going to justify that headcount and budget in terms of results in 2024. So we would be working pretty heavily on that. And one area that we're particularly, I guess, forceful on is um, helping them structure their teams internally. So for most of our clients, and this would sound really odd coming from a professional services company, because you know, you would think um, that it's to our advantage if there's fewer people working there in those functions, because then we can execute on that work and make more money. But for most of our clients, their biggest limitations to success, and therefore our biggest limitation to success, is a lack of headcount. So there is a nat- there is a natural um, pinch point in terms of the work they can execute on, and that pinch point affects their results, obviously, but it also affects us. So you know, a client can come to us and say this is what our vision in 2023 is. And oftentimes part of that discussion is we would love to help you execute on that vision, but only about 50% of that is achievable in the upcoming fiscal year. The reason being that you want to deploy CDP. That's great. You would need to hire three business analysts and a technician to do this, to get value from it. And it's great that you want to deploy an account-based marketing strategy and we'll help you deploy that platform. We'll help you execute on that. But in order to do so, you would probably have to double the size of your content team. And Cloud Kettle doesn't help generate content, but if you want to pursue an ABM strategy, you're going to have to double the size of your content team. Is it plausible that that's going to happen this year? No. Okay, well, maybe it makes more sense to focus on just deploying a CDP this year and looking at an ABM in 2024 when you've ramped up that content team. So usually our client's biggest barrier to success is those natural pinch points internally where they just cannot allocate headcount to the functions they would need to allocate in order to maximize the benefit of these platforms. Yeah, really, uh, it's such an interesting point as well of how you start to bring it all together. Um, I'm, something that I am really interested to ask, Greg, after, uh, you know, listen to some of the stuff that you've talked about um, on other podcasts before. I think I've, I've worked out two things. One, you love Fiti Mom. And, uh, and two, I understand that you also love attribution modeling as well. So I'm, I'm really keen to understand because, it, you know, this is very much in, in my wheelhouse now, right? Uh, really uh, in, interested to understand your perspective on, on attribution. So... I've worked at several large companies, uh, you know, multinational organizations. I've had the benefit of probably seeing every possible attribution model in the world put into play or variations thereof at one point in the other. And then if you look across all our clients, you know, there's got to be a dozen, at least maybe more attribution models in play right now. And many are searching for a holy grail of the perfect attribution model. And what they're searching for is not the thing that they actually need. So 
What many are searching for, and one of our clients in particular has actually managed to do this. So they have a BI analyst who's rather brilliant. Um, I think he has a PhD and he has built this perfect attribution model and it almost perfectly predicts what revenue is going to be and attributes it back to the appropriate groups. Um, Unfortunately, it is a black box. Only one person understands how it works and it causes constant internal consternation and debate and friction between different groups because only one person understands how it works and it's a black box and it cannot be easily explained. And I literally do this for a living and I don't fully understand how it works. Um, And the key to a successful attribution model is actually that you can explain it in 30 seconds to a C-suite executive um, and everybody understands how it works. And that's important because when you have your hopefully bi-weekly pipeline council, if your company does not have this, that's probably symptom one that you have a problem, but hopefully you have a bi-weekly pipeline council, which turns to weekly going into the end of a quarter or fiscal year, where the CRO, the CMO, the CEO, and a couple of analysts every two weeks are spending an hour together. They're looking at what pipeline is. They're looking at where those gaps in pipeline are. And they're saying, okay, from a total pipeline perspective, we are going to meet our objectives this quarter. However, we are soft in EMEA in the next quarter. And we can see looking at this that we are going to miss our number in EMEA the next quarter out. What are we going to do in order to shore that up? Because the purpose of Pipeline Council is not to assign blame or credit. Um, The purpose of Pipeline Council is to predict where the soft spots in revenue are going to be in future quarters and then allocate resources strategically to that. So in that pipeline council, you may determine that you're going to be very soft in me in a Q4. And if you're looking at pipeline from an international total company perspective, you might say, great, we have enough pipeline. We're good. Everybody's checked their boxes. But once you break it down by region and by domain, that becomes a problem. And EMEA is a really good example where you might be over-indexing in pipeline in North America, but you're soft in EMEA. Okay, that's a big problem because your SDRs in North America speak English and they they cannot sell into EMEA and vice versa. So if you are really soft on pipeline in EMEA in Q4, what's going to happen is you have a bunch of SDRs in Q3 who are not getting fed enough leads. They do not have enough people to phone. They are not going to hit their number um, because they speak French and German and that is who they're going to pursue. And then in Q4, you're going to have a bunch of salespeople in EMEA who, even though the North American team is killing it and reaping in huge bonuses, um, that EMEA team is not going to generate enough sales in Germany and France or wherever they're located. Um, And you're going to lose them. Those people are going to realize they're not going to hit their number. They're not going to get bonuses and they're going to move on to better, greener pastures. Similarly, if you have um, territories based on certain target markets. So, hey, we're killing it this fiscal year in automotive, but our airline sales are plummeting, but you've hired these really expensive salespeople who are specialized in airlines. Again, you're, you're going to have that same problem. And maybe you as an organization have committed to a board that you have a strategic objective of penetrating the airline industry in the next two fiscal years. So it's very important that that pipeline council can look at that vision and break it down by territory, by domain, and actually realize in each section, 
um, as they burrow down where they need to allocate resources. Where attribution comes into play on that is usually ideally have a first touch attribution model because it's very simple. It can be explained to everybody. Everybody understands it. And it's, it's brutal. It's brutally harsh. Um, there is only one person who gets credit. Uh, but what's important is when you're in that pipeline council, you can look at that and understand, okay, we're soft in SMBs and specifically we're soft in SMBs in EMEA. When we look at where our first touch attribution model tells us we get leads for EMEA for SMBs, we know that, that those come from events. Marketing is now going to take these dollars and apply it to events specifically in EMEA because we know from our first touch attribution model that that generates what we need there. Um, multi-touch attribution models are great and marketing teams should have those so that they can figure out in a more complex pattern what works. And when you look at a multi-touch attribution model, where that's important is it allows marketing to understand that, yes, if we look at first-touch attribution, we're getting all these leads from events. But when we look at multi-touch attribution, we have these unsung heroes. And the two unsung heroes that I always like to bring up are newsletters and webinars. So newsletters and webinars generate very few leads. But when you actually look at a multi-touch attribution model as a marketing team, what you see is they can really pull deals along in a great way. Webinars in particular are very good at taking people who are fence sitters and already leads and pushing them back into a sales cycle. Newsletters are really good at keeping somebody warm and pulling them back in later. Um, and, and they get very little marketing allocation in terms of resources. They're usually a pain in the ass thing that most companies don't want to do but realize they have to. Um, so it's very important for marketing to have a multi-touch attribution model so that they understand that they should not starve webinars, that they should not starve newsletters, that they should allocate more and more resources to better content for those two things. But from an overall organizational perspective, you need that brutal first-touch attribution model. And the one that I recommend to most clients and I like the best is what Salesforce calls the four horses model, which really breaks all... Uh, attribution out on a first touch model over four domains, which is it was generated by marketing. Um, it was generated by sales, it's expansion revenue, um, or it's renewals. But it, it's one of those four things and it, everything has to fit into those four buckets. And then when you look at that at the start of the fiscal year and you're judging where resources have to be allocated, you get strategic about it and you say, okay, looking at this, we have these four legs on our stool and when we look at those four legs, they're not evenly distributed. So at a mature SaaS company, cross-sell, upsell, which maybe is going to come from customer success, that is going to be a significant portion, if not most of your revenue. So renewals and cross-sell, upsell might be most of your revenue at a mature SaaS company, especially if you have a low churn rate. And then you have this next leg in the stool, which is marketing. And marketing can be very, very effective on your SMB side. So you might say... 80% of our new revenue this year um, that comes from SMBs, marketing is responsible for. However, marketing is only responsible for 20% of the revenue in a first-touch attribution model in these four horses for our enterprise. Because those enterprise new sales, that almost always has to happen as part of sales's motion. So we've got these very high-end salespeople, and they're going out and pursuing Siemens and Ford and um, 
you know, these large global multinational strategics. And marketing may play a multi-touch attribution part in that sales process, but that's going to be led by sales. And so you get this dichotomy where it's important not just to look at those four teams and how the revenue is broken out over them. You also have to slice and dice it by region and by SMB versus enterprise. So marketing is always going to carry the biggest bucket on SMB. Um, Generally, sales is going to carry the biggest bucket on enterprise. And then you get into regional differences where if we look at APAC, marketing tends to be less successful in some Asian countries in terms of penetration because you have these large buying combines and that it's really a much more long relationship experience. And so maybe um, sales is going to be playing a much heavier part in that first touch attribution model in APAC than they are in North America, where a ad-driven sales model is much more accepted and common. Something I'm really curious to understand then, you know, from a, and this is specifically from a, I think, a multi-channel attribution perspective. What's your opinion on what we, we as marketers call the, the, the dark funnel, which is all the things that you ultimately can't attribute? So that might be, you know, prospects seeing a social post, perhaps they see a TV ad, hear about it on the radio, you know, even word of mouth. Um, do you have much experience with businesses who are um, either perhaps trying to measure it or at least understand it in the, in the attribution modeling? Yes. I, so part of the issue is that... And, and, you know, not everybody's going to agree with this point of view, but an awful lot of really smart people spend way too much time chasing down where these 10% of leads came from. And they could be much better allocating that time and headspace into improving the performance of the other 90%. So what you get is this internal consternation where, um, you know, a really smart marketing team understands very well where 90% of the leads coming from and what generated them, but they spend 30% of the time trying to figure out and allocate responsibility um, for this other 10% of stuff. And I would way rather see those teams spend that 30% of time just improving the performance of the stuff they do understand. So, hey, great. 10% of your leads that are coming in are coming in from a place that we can't attribute. That's fine. There's some natural experiments that will occur over time uh, that will allow us to understand that better. So maybe for some reason, we've stopped running TV ads in the Midwest. And six months later, we really see a precipitous drop in performance. Okay, that was a natural experiment. You know, we didn't A-B test that, nor would we. But now we understand that TV is providing value and we should be thinking about that. But you know, other than the obvious things you do, like using specific phone numbers that are coded to specific campaign IDs, um, certainly anything that can be clicked on is fairly trackable. Teams do spend far too much time trying to perfect measurement instead of trying to iterate and improve performance. And that is very consistent across revenue operations teams that we work with. People really dislike that unknown, let's say 10%, um, and don't handle it well, and somebody wants credit for it, and the overall organization would be almost always be much better served by focusing on improving the performance of the known quantity. Yeah, I completely agree. Greg, last, last question, and we've gone quite deep, so I want to take a step back. Um, and very simply, um, what is one book that you would recommend to, to other revenue leaders? Uh, it, it's an oldie. Um, but I am very passionate 
about the Challenger customer and the Challenger sale. Uh, both have been around for a long time. I think they fell out of favor and maybe don't get recommended as often because there's newer, sexier things out there. But both those books for me hold the test of time. Um, and, and I'm very strong believer both in how Cloud Kettle approaches um, our customer process and how our most successful clients tend to approach how um, they develop their prospects and customers. Um, those books are rare in the world of businessing books in that they've held the test of time for many, many years, probably well over a decade each in the way that most fads don't. So yeah, if you're going to read one book and certainly if you work at Cloud Kettle, you get it on your first day of work, whether you want it or not. Uh, but if you're going to read one book, I would say the challenger customer and, or the challenger sale, ideally both. Um, I was going to say that, that was more than one book. <laughs> like, yeah. but, uh, well, they feed into I, each other and they're by the same author, <laughs> etc. Uh, but they're, they're very good reads and I highly recommend them. No, excellent recommendation. We'll, uh, we'll put a, a link down to both of those in, in the show notes. Um, Greg, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about you, follow you, um, and, and probably debate your view on attribution modeling, I suspect after that, uh, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Greg Poirier. Uh, I'm on Twitter, although that's mostly non-work stuff. And then certainly the Cloud Kettle blog. So just go to cloudkettle.com. We'll put links to all those down the show notes as well. Greg, okay. thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, and, and to everyone that has listened, thank you so much as well. We'll, we'll see you next week. Okay. Thanks for having me, Lee. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.